0: If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 1 Peter. The last time I spoke here, we uh, we looked at uh, the end of chapter 1, and we're going to just continue then uh, in the rest of what Peter was talking about. The beginning of 1 Peter is uh, talking about salvation. Your salvation has some response from you, and some of the response is just a natural response, like sticking your finger in the socket, you will have a response. You don't have to do anything. It will just automatically happens. And other thing other responses are something that you will do on purpose. You will do out of respect to God of who he is. And as you learn about him, you will respond to him more and more and more appropriately as as we live. Um, Pastor Allen read in the book of Second Samuel this morning of how David desired to build God a house. He felt ashamed that his residence was better than, uh, than the place where people came to, to worship God. And God had never asked for a temple. But when David asked with a pure heart that he wanted to do it, um, God sent word through the prophet that, that first of all, you, you want to build me a house? That's wonderful. That's, that's fantastic. Um, I'm going to build you a house instead and I'm going to have one of your sons do that building and he's going to establish a house that will be a temple for me for all of eternity when this old temple that uh, Solomon uh, built uh, his son Solomon when it was one stone not left upon another the temple that Christ is building us will last for all of eternity when this world is gone uh, we will still be worshiping God as he intends. So as as I looked at this uh, passage and the idea of building a house and that Christ is building a house for God using us, I remember in uh, Matthew 16, this is probably the high point in the book of Matthew, um, so much has happened. The Jewish leaders have rejected Jesus completely about chapter 12 uh, and Jesus is continuing to work in this world. He's loving people. He's healing people. He basically and um, completely did away with sickness in the entire country uh, while he was there. He healed everybody that came to him. He cast out demons. He showed himself to be God in every way. And then he asked his disciples who had been with him for ages, um, who do people say I am? And there were all kinds of answers. Uh, You are maybe Elijah or maybe you're a new prophet or nobody quite is sure. They know something's up, but they don't know much. And then he said, well, who do you think I am? And Peter just looks at him and said, you're the Messiah. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You're the son of God. And he said, interesting. I'm going to change your name for that. I'm going to call you Rock. And this rock that you just said, this declaration that I am God uh, on earth and that I am Emmanuel, I'm going to build a church on that. I'm going to build a palace on that. I'm going to build a temple for God's praise in that. And I'm going to use the most unlikely of building materials. I'm going to use you. So Peter knew that the church was not built on him. Poor Peter. Pope Peter knew that he was not the foundation of the church. He knew that Christ was the foundation of the church. And in his letter later to suffering people all over the world, these elect exiles who God has chosen but others have rejected, he is saying, you have no idea of what God is doing in your life. You have no idea how wealthy you are. You have no idea what your salvation really means. You have the smallest inkling that something has happened. You know that your desires have changed. You know that you want to be holy. You know that you're not. But you you have a hunger for something that will eventually be satisfied, that you hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you will be satisfied. And he said, he said, there are reactions to this salvation. As you are dazzled by it, things will happen out of your heart. And so in the, in the middle of chapter 1, we see that he said, you are going to respond to God a certain way based upon this salvation that's growing in your heart and continuously building in you, uh, thrilling you more every day. And you will progressively, incrementally, one day at a time, grow in holiness to God. To where the things of God mean more than they ever did before. And that his glory means more than your glory. And his, his name means more to you than your own comfort or your own very life. He then, built, he then changes and he said, your salvation also has a reaction of how you treat each other. Others that God has accepted, you will love. And when you respond to the gospel in obedience, there is a love that prompts to anybody else that God has accepted. And when we see fellowship, fellowship, Christian fellowship, besides being food-centered, is very Christ-centered in the fact that our fellowship, the only thing we have in common is that we love God through the Holy Spirit, that God has put life in our hearts and that we value Jesus highly And that is enough of a fellowship to bind us together for all of eternity. And so this church that Jesus is making using us is incrementally becoming more fit together as we love each other more. And then later we're going to see the final thing of Christianity. If you were going to say, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who is holy, growing in their holiness towards God in obedience and repentance, loving to other, to other Christians more and more deeply, more meaningfully, in real ways, not in superficial uh, outward ways, but in real ways, loving each other as we need to be loved. And how we deal with ourselves is that we root ourselves in the Bible, that we root ourselves, knowing that God's word changes us. So to, to love yourself is to love your bible is to continuously bathe in what god says is true about himself because i promise every time that you you step away from the from the wood burning stove you'll get cold again you have to step again i don't know if you've ever been to where the fireplace roasts you on one side and freezes you on the other that is the scriptures you me everyone will instantly default back to unbelief will instantly fall back to Trying to make sense of this world the best we can, to try to fix our own problems and try to, to spin it in such a way that I can get through one more day. That's the way we live. That is what a fallen world has done to us. And it is only when you gaze into, into God's word that you are able to, to see yourself as God sees you and to see God as God sees himself. And that will completely center you again. And then the last thing that this passage says is that we deal to the outsiders in how we love each other and how we praise, we, we form a praise of God's glory through our lives. So we minister to to those who do not know God. We love those who do not love God. We sit in God's Bible out of a love for our own self and we are holy towards God as, 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 out of deep reverence, and respect for his being God over us. And that's the life of a Christian. This passage dictates this from chapter 1 to chapter 2. That's what it is about. So here's Peter, the goofball, the patron saint of goofballs, who everyone loves because they're like, wow, he's just like me because I trust him when he is the one who sat through these teachings of Christ and it changed him, and it changed him in a real way. And when you look at him in the pages of the Gospels, speaking before he he thinks and always acting without understanding what's going on, and then you look at these letters written to the churches and the deep love that he has and the wisdom he has, you think he's two different people. How in the world has someone changed? How in the world has someone like me changed? And you may see yourself as being far, far, far from the kingdom but if you've turned to the Lord, you can look behind you and see that you have, tr- you have gone through acres of ground and miles of, tr- of road. And that you are not even close to the filthy man you used to be. You, you are going to glory. And God is going to get you there little by little. But he does it together. We go, we go as a congregation. We love each other actively on purpose to whatever cost it costs us. And that's how we do it. So, do you see my lesson? That's the lesson. Now let's look at it and we'll see the details and we'll put, we'll put flesh on that skeleton and see what God has said to us and how that we're told on to it and what we're to aspire to. And the ways that we need to be corrected, we stand corrected. To whatever shame that the, the word of God brings us to, you repent and go on. You get up again and you go on. You, you follow Jesus until forever until there's no until, until faith becomes sight. So we're going to look at uh, at each of these. Now, I'd like to go back just a bit, a bit into the last passage. So if you'll turn back to chapter 1, we'll just look quickly at the last several verses of chapter 1 and then go in because it is very, very difficult to truly take two verses and explain two verses because two verses are embedded into bigger ideas. And so unless unless you are simply looking at microscopically at something very, very small, one sentence, one clause, it is impossible to do that without backing up just a little bit into getting a running start for it. So the last time I spoke we started in verse 22. Seeing that you've purified your souls in obeying the truth, love one another fervently. Seeing that you're born again, Because all flesh is grass, and only the word of God stands forever. And that word of God is the gospel that was presented to you. And then it goes on, um, wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile. So it's funny, like how does that glue together? If the whole end is that we're to love each other, and that we're to love each other by, by loving each other in the spirit, and the only way we can do that is God's spirit working through his word in us that that's how we love each other so we have commands here a command in the new testament is the same as the commands in the old there's not a single difference between this command of love one another fervently and have no other gods before me that's the same it is it is a commandment it is not something that you simply dismiss you don't say i'm picking and choosing i like this i don't like this You say, oh, I'm a Ten Commandments kind of person, whatever that means. A commandment is always impossible. There's nothing that God has commanded us that can be done in our own strength at all. You can't love one another fervently. That's absolutely ridiculous. The best we can do is be a hypocrite. The best we could do is pretend or to act in such a way that you might think that I'm acting one way, but but really I couldn't care less or I'm stabbing you in the back at the same time. It doesn't take very long first grade, second grade, before you wake up and realize what the world is like and that you've got to be an actor and you've got to pretend and you've got to be very, very careful how you act so that people don't think you're too bad, but you're bad enough to be accepted. It's a very, very delicate dance that we learn when we learn to be a sinner. And we are very well-practiced sinners. And especially church sinners. Church sinners are very well-practiced because we have to be socially acceptable. We have to sin only in certain ways we can't sin in others. There can't be complete gross things in our life because others would call us a hypocrite. But we can look at this list in verse 2. Laying aside all malice and guile, hypocrisies, envies, and evil speakings. These are church sins. These are communities destroying sins. And Peter chose these on purpose. But these are commandments like all commandments and impossible. Truly, how in the world could I treat you with no trickiness, with no guile, with no pretense, with no trying to get something out of you without trying to manipulate you. That's the way we treat everybody. That's the way everybody treats us. So either we simply say these things are not true and act as though they are and have no power in our Christian life at all, or we take God for his word and with blind eyes look, because that is, that's the command. All of these commands are impossible. So when when Moses raised the the stick with the snake on it and there were 20 million people in the valley and he said, look on the snake. And everyone's like, where's Moses? I don't even know where he is. Like he's over there somewhere two miles away and they're just looking with blind eyes. Look at the snake is all that they said and you'll be healed. And that's what he does. We're dead people commanded to look. And when we look with our dead eyes, God gives us life. That's what it is. God takes seriously anyone that takes him at his word. When you trust God as though he's telling you the truth, miracle will happen. Dead people come to life. People who are useless, worthless, are meaningful in each other's lives. And you can obey the Lord in righteousness. You can live a righteous life in this world as the Spirit enables you. But it never simply commands you to do something impossible without telling you first what's true of you. So let's look just a second. The first command that I see in verse 22 is love one another with a pure heart fervently, which again is impossible. Have that, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever loved anyone purely, fervently, boilingly, uh, completely at full maximum power? Um, it's based upon this first verse in 22, seeing that you've purified your souls in obeying the truth. Because the gospel has come to you, because that gospel has touched you, you're capable now of loving one another f- fervently. It's possible. Because something miraculously has happened in your life, God now commands you to do something. And Peter, above all people, do- does this. This is Peter's way of writing. If you would read Peter's letters, all everything he does is he gives a command sandwiched in gospel. This is what's happened in your life, and because of this has happened, do something impossible and do it totally God expecting you to do it. Love each other fervently because we're going to see that it's of the utmost importance. This second statement of command is in chapter 2, verse 2. This amazing list of malice and guile and hypocrisies. So malice is just generic wickedness. The background noise of my life is malice. I, am, I have a bent towards wickedness. I will always go that way. It's, when, it's like when the struts are, are out of your car and your car always goes left and you always have to turn right and then you get your struts fixed and you almost wreck the car because you're trying to compensate for something that's not broken. It works the same in your life. You are normal for wanting something out of other people. You normally manipulate other people. That's how we live. But if we are to do it with no guile, if we're to do it with no hypocrisy, with no false face, not envying each other, not speaking, not backbiting, not speaking in a way that will cause others pain and me to be promoted somehow in other, other wicked people's minds. It requires knowledge of the gospel. And this is from verse 23. The, it gives you something that's true and then commands you to do something. So if you look at 23, it says being born again, not of incorruptible seed, but, cor- but not corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. And then there's the big parentheses. This word of God, which will last forever, which is the gospel that was preached to you. Then it goes straight into the command. Don't be the way that your natural bent is. You fight against that with every breath. You live in the spirit in a loving way, on purpose, in not a fakey way, not a, not a way that is going to cause others to be dropped back down, but you prefer each other. You lift them up. You on purpose love. And we're going to see that this purpose is because God is building a house. And God is not just building a house out of me. He's building a house not just out of you. He's building a house using all of us and using people that we've never met, people that love him, that speak other languages in other countries, in other times. All of this being put into a spiritual house and he is putting us together, and the only mortar that can hold a Christian sinner together is love. There is nothing big enough, nothing strong enough, nothing that will connect us other than on-purpose love, and we don't even know what that means. We know what courtesy means, we know how to be polite, but we, but we have to practice loving, and it's an on-purpose thing. It's not something passive, it's something that we do on purpose, in obedience to what God has done. The next verse, in, in verse two, returns back to this idea of the Bible. The Bible is the way that we live our Christian life, and so a person who trusts God and then never ever grows is got to be the saddest thing in the entire world. How how many years have I tried to live a Christian life with a Bible on a shelf? It's because I know the. The books of the Bible in order, somehow I thought that I did it. Or if, if I know some Bible stories from kindergarten, somehow I thought that was enough. No. What, what poverty did that cause me? What, like, I can't live a life, I can't live a life that's, that is a miraculous life by doing the same things that I was born with. I can't live a, I can't be born again and not feed. If, if a baby were to not eat, everybody in the hospital would just swarm. It, it's the most serious. There's nothing more serious. If that baby fails to thrive, it will die. It's exactly the same. Peter knows that of all the things that we need, we need love that cannot ever be love unless we have a cont- continuous, constant gaze at Jesus in his true beauty we cannot have holiness. We can't have anything more than hypocrisy unless you're continuously looking at what God said God is and who, who Christ is and what he is and what he is to you, what he has done for you. What does that mean? And as you do that, two things happen. You live a holy life towards God. You love other Christians. And you express your faith to the world in reality, not in a, not in a forced way, not in an awkward way. You're witnessing, if you are living a, a God-centered life, your witnessing is normal and natural. It's not forced, it's not a guilt trip of I need to tell people about Jesus and read my Bible and pray. It's this, it's this checklist that's a huge cinder block on my, on my shoulders. And it's normally people who don't read their Bible that tell me to read my Bible. That, that's the way it works. We guilt trip each other knowing that we are not doing the very same thing that we're telling somebody else. So here's a cinder block. Hold my cinder block. Oh, yeah, for the rest of your life. Thanks. That's exactly how it works. And the only way that we can be free from that is to have a life where Christ is actually living his life life through us. And that is centered in his word. So he comes back and he says, as newborn babies. So he even uses the baby uh, picture here at two o'clock in the morning screaming, doesn't know how to communicate, only knows he's hungry. And the only thing he's ever had is milk and that's all he wants. If you've tasted milk and that's all the baby's ever tasted, you don't give a newborn honey or steak sauce, you give him milk and that's all and that's all he wants and he wants it till he's four. And because that's like the most comforting thing that he can think of. And it is pure, it says, the sincere milk of the word. That unpolluted, uncorrupted, unimaginably sweet nourishment that causes you to grow. And it says that you may grow thereby. So it's interesting that that taste in your mouth drives an increase in appetite. So to read God's word and truly just bask in who he is makes you delight. It's a taste in your mouth that makes you want it. And as you want it, his command here is not read your Bible. His command is desire it. Now, that's amazing to me. It's beautiful to me because I can understand someone telling me to do something. I can understand someone telling me not to do something. But for someone to tell me to desire something, that's amazing because how does that work? How do you make me want what I don't want? How, it's because as my blind eye looks, the miracle happens and God's, God's spirit catches me and it is a miraculous life it is a spiritual life it's a true life it's the life that when this body is long turned to dust and the worms crawl in and the worms crawl out you will still be living that life that's dependent upon god's spirit in order to respond to god appropriately for all eternity and it it will be free it's a freedom it's a freedom can you imagine not being a sinner can you imagine having no desire to act one way and be another, to have nothing at all when you look at a person and not want anything from them but but them being higher and and better and closer to the Lord and that truly being your only inclination, I I can't imagine. I don't care what the streets are made out of. For for Brian not to be a sinner, for, and interesting, God's forgotten my sins but he lets me (coughs) remember them I think that's amazing that I'll always know what I missed as as the countless thousands of people better than me go into the fiery hell and I don't. And I'll know that. And I'll know what I'll I'll know what I was in in reality what I was saved from and what I was saved to. We eye has not seen and ear has not heard, neither has even imagined what God has in store for us. We don't even have the first clue or inkling. And when you know, you'll go, Jesus did that for me, for me, and then you'll remember who you are. You'll remember every filthy thought. You'll remember every foul deed. You'll remember every nasty action. And you'll go, God forgave me in Christ out of grace. Hallelujah, and Jesus becomes bigger to you, and that temple is now a temple of praise, because this house that Jesus is building, using us, is for glory to God, and not glory to anything else. It's, it, and we will will say amen to it. It will be like, of all the things we want, I want to only honor God. Now, right now, I'm so there's so many things over my eyes. There's an inch of cloth over your eyes can obscure you from looking at the biggest vista on the tallest mountain. A hundred miles of view can be taken away by an inch of, of a bedsheet tied around your head. And I have got so many things in my mind, so many things that mean nothing, so many ridiculously empty, temporary things are in my face that I have no idea what God is going to do But one day I will know. And my praise will only increase. It will only increase. It will only be better. And all of us together will truly honor God because we are honoring Christ. God has given us the ability to know that Christ is everything for us. We want nothing except Christ. You take the world and give me Jesus. I win. And when you know that, that is different than most people. That is God's spirit working in your heart. And he is causing you to have faith. He's causing you to see. He's allowing you to taste. He wants you to walk towards him. And in your struggle and in your sin, he's forgiven all your sins. You don't go to hell again every time that you sin. But every time you sin, you are bringing disfavor to God's glory. You are cheating him of the grace that he's giving you. And so when he looks at this filthy list, can you imagine all the church ladies? You know what I mean. The church ladies that you've known in your life, laying aside all malice. How many knows a church lady malicious, guilely, that's sneaky, hypocrisies? And boy, I've known some guys too, mm. envious, evil speaking. These are church crimes. Throw them away, throw them away. And you go forward towards Christ in grace. That's, it, that's what it is. All of your sins have been forgiven. That is amazing. As babies desire it. Okay, now he changes metaphors. Look back with me at the passage. This is verse 4. To him, or to whom, coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Do you see? It's not, you come to Jesus, not as the thousands of people who came up to Jesus and then walked away from Jesus exactly the same as they came. You, it's not everybody that hears hallelujah, Jesus, Jesus. I, and it really was a long time in my life. I am a very stupid person I assume that when someone says, God bless you, that there's some kind of a, a Christianity in their heart, not recognizing that you, there's thousands of Jesuses in this country, there's, there's hundreds of gods in this country, and God is not God. And when someone says God, I just assumed that that's who they were talking about until I realized, oh my goodness, you can't live like this and claim to be, to be godly, it doesn't work. This is what godly is. You look at the scriptures and this is who God says a godly person is. God gets to pick the standard. I don't. I can't tell you what I am. Identifying as a Christian is like identifying as a woman. Can you imagine? Hi, my name is Bob and I'm a woman. That's what everybody does now. You can't tell me what to do. Well, how many identifiers as Christians are? Just because I say something doesn't mean anything there's a change that happens in my life. I come to Jesus and I do not come on my own terms. I come on his terms. I am already condemned, already condemned. I'm fully condemned awaiting my sentence. It's done already. And I come to the savior for salvation on his terms. I do not dictate the terms of my salvation. I don't say I'll be saved as long as I get to do X, Y, Z, any way I want, and be any kind of person I want, identify as a Christian, you can't judge me? Yes, you can. You absolutely can, and you do all the time. Now, you have to always be careful because you're just as likely to be nasty as other people, so you have to be careful. But once you, once you recognize that you ask, myself, you ask yourself, have I come to Christ in repentance? Have I thrown away all the good things I've done that would commend me before God? Have I thrown away all the bad things that I've done that, would, that God would despise me for? Have I, have, I, have I put that away and come to Christ? Then you've come to him, and you've come to him as a living stone. Now, what a picture. I would have in a thousand years never thought about this. A stone, and this is not the first time in the Bible that Jesus referred to as a stone. The part that popped immediately in my head when I read this was Daniel chapter 2. Now, I don't know if you remember um, at the beginning, there, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He has a dream. And he, God gave him this dream showing you the kingdoms of the world. And there was a gold head and a silver chest and iron legs and clay feet. Do you recall this big statue? He went to the heavens, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what it meant. And Daniel told him what it meant. And he said, he said these are our kingdoms. And you've got you've got the the gold head Nebuchadnezzar. You're the gold head, and then the, it goes down to silver, a little less valuable than iron strong, and then it splits. The legs split, and you say these are kingdoms. You've got Greece coming. You've got Rome coming. These are all going to happen in the world, and then some, the most amazing thing: a stone cut out of the mountain comes hurling through space and slams into this statue and obliterates it into a million, zillion, billion pieces. And it says, and this stone uh, grows into a mighty mountain that fills the entire earth. This is Jesus again. This is Jesus. He's everywhere. This entire scripture is about Jesus being God of heaven and earth. And he, he obliterates anything of any praise and glory that's not directed towards God. He obliterates it. What's left of the Roman Empire? It was feet of clay that all crumbled into nothing. And every empire, including ours, that will ever endure till Christ comes back will all be obliterated. Only Jesus gets glory. And he's that stone that completely annihilates it. He was that one. It says that he was disallowed of men, but chosen of God. See, God gets to pick. Others don't get to pick. So we're gonna see this in the next time that we speak, and we're gonna see that Jesus is the cornerstone, that the whole building is built on Christ. He's also the capstone that holds every stone together, that he's the center and the foundation, and that he's the one that God picks. There is an amazing story in uh, the book of Numbers. You have a bunch of, of people that God has chosen as a people that are our sinners. And these sinners are now capable of worshiping God because God has allowed a system to develop to where he can protect himself, protect them from himself. So he has priests, and the priests do specific things. And then there's a high priest who once a year goes into the inside temple, which has represented God's very presence, and offers a sacrifice so that year by year, God holds back his judgment on them. And there was a priest named Korah. God, his feelings hurt because he wasn't picked. I think that I'm just as good as Aaron. Why does Aaron think he's good? I think that we should vote. I believe that everybody that thinks that we should all go into the temple, raise your hand. And 16 people were like, yeah, yeah, Cora. And so all these people were like, yeah. And so God, you can just imagine, here's God of heaven and earth holding back his wrath. All of the Bible is a picture of God holding back his wrath, holding it back, holding it back, so that he doesn't annihilate me. That's God. He held it back so that he doesn't destroy us. And he said, okay, this is what I want you to do. Every tribe, get a stick. You carve your name on that stick. Every tribe, I want you to carve Levi into this. He told Aaron, he said, Aaron, you're from the tribe of Levi. Your staff that Moses threw down in front of Pharaoh and turn into a snake, put Levi on that stick, carve it right in real deep. And everybody put your stick, Mr. Chorus, Marty Pants, you put your tribe's name, you put your name, put your name, Bob, Larry, and all all of you, put them in the tabernacle, close the door, and all of you meet me back here at 9 in the morning. So they all got up, they put it in the tent, at 9 o'clock, here comes everybody, everybody wanted to see. They opened the door, and you had 11 dead sticks And Aaron's stick was not only not dead, but it had blossomed into almond flowers and full of almond fruit and even almond nuts in the same stick. A dead stick that had been dead for however many years it was, was alive. Do you see Jesus again? It's again and again and again. Jesus is God's pick and only pick, only pick. God says, I pick, I pick. You want to come to me, you come to me only through Christ. Nothing else, period, that's it. There is no other answer. You come to Christ and I affirm Aaron's my pick because his uh, stick blossomed. What was dead came to life again and I proved it. Aaron is the priest. He's the only one that comes before me. You don't. And so that is us. We despise him, we disallow him, we reject him. But he's chosen of God and precious. There is a price that God put on Jesus Christ, and it's as high, unestimable high, higher than the highest sky, higher than all the value of this earth, that everything in the entire world is not worth what Christ is worth to God. And God picks and God gets to have the last word. Sorry, man, that's the way it is. Okay, and until we, as a society of true Christian believers, say that to our culture, we are wasted. We're wasting our time. We we are trying to assimilate. We're trying to be relevant. We're trying to live, play nice. There is no nice. You come to God on God's terms, and that's all. There is no other gospel. The gospel is that he will accept anyone that comes to him in repentance and faith based upon the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's all. There is nothing else there. And so I'll end there. Do you see what's happening? He's putting us together. He's putting us together as stones. He's laying us in in rows, one generation after another generation, all on top of Christ. Christ is the foundation stone, and we're laid in line on top of him. And we're going to see that he's also the cornerstone, which sets all the angles. We'll do that next time. My angles need to be the same as his. That's why my, my, my personality stays my personality, but my character has to be God's character. And he will eventually turn me into the image of Christ, and he will build me into a wall. The last that I wrote down I just think was amazing. Solomon finally gets to build the temple, and he didn't want any sound of any hammers or saws. And so everybody that built the temple cut all the stone outside of the city. And then they brought the stones already cut and put it into the wall. And so it said, this is uh, 1 Kings 6, and the house when it was in building was built of stone made ready before it was brought thither so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was building. Do you see? You are going to be perfect as God works in your life. He is okay with pulling the rug out from under you. He's okay with bringing catastrophe in your life. He's okay with piling blessings on you. But just because the world thinks that some things are good and some things are bad, don't think the God signed up for that. God knows what I need. He knows. And He will, he will carve me in exactly the way I want and fit me perfectly into the wall connected to you on top of previous generations of godly people who were sinners just like me, all of us resting, and all of it will be built up into a house of praise. So we're going to see that the rest of sitting your full weight on that course of stone is all that trust is. Trust and belief in Christ is putting all of your weight on Christ's cornerstone that's underneath you, supporting you, and you'll never fall. You'll never topple. Hallelujah.